This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Ola Stray. He is the founder of Strayer Watches. Ola, welcome. Thank you, Ariel. Nice to meet you again. Yes, we had a lovely chat here in Los Angeles where you uh, so thoughtfully introduced your brand to me. And I thought it would be really great to have you uh, on the show because you are yet another very accomplished designer and thinker who has said to themselves, you know what I need to do? Start a watch brand. Is that how you would describe it? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm always very honored when when people um, well introduce me like like uh, a great designer or innovator thinker. Uh, but sure, it, it, the stray of project began as a dream uh, from based on my background and and uh, how I uh, was able to make it into a, a real product uh, the way I desired. Uh, together with with a lot of help from from friends and and uh, very qualified people in in the business and outside of, of the business. Well, let's let's go back and talk about the other things you made. I think you sort of need to get to the point where you decided you want to make a watch. I mean, yeah. that's the, sort of the thing with watches these days, which I think is interesting. You don't just go to school and design a watch, and then boom, you have some type of success. Most of the great watch designs today and of the last several decades have been from people who have accomplishments in other uh, engineering, creative, or professional fields and then decide to sort of lend that to watches. And I think that's interesting how, you know, a, a degree of uh, life and sophistication and maturity and experience are all necessary. Would, would you agree with all that or do you have a different perspective? I No, I do. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, having experience from another uh, how do you say background as an artist or, or designer or, or inventor gives you how do you say a free mind or um, a white sheet when, when starting up with something new and, and for me I set off with with the honest uh, thought that no one needs or the world doesn't need another watch but I still wanted to bring something from my background with mechanical design uh, industrial design, innovation, and put this into a watch. And that was my desire uh, to show that it could be made. And working with interchangeability, that, that became uh, like the uh, project uh, for Strayer. A lot of other brands had failed actually doing this. And, and I knew from my background that you could do incredible things with, with the right engineers, with the right precision and being consistent and, and not letting go of your dreams, but also with the knowledge from where I came from, from another background. So yes, I do believe that that coming in from, from another uh, background experience adds a lot of, of fresh thinking and, and new ideas for sure. Now, you mentioned interchangeability. That obviously is a key element of the Strayer watch. The inner case is designed to come out of the outer case, and you can swap it. The watch comes with two outer cases. And you said something interesting, that you'd seen it done not as well, and you wanted to do it better. Explain a little bit about some of the other products on the market you had seen that made you feel like, wow, I could really get this done better. Well, I mean, I think the first thing when it came to interchangeability was was when Gucci made those uh, colored rings that you could put on top of on the bezel to to give a watch and uh, expressing another interchangeability or another another look, and then you had some plastic ideas where you could wrap it out and in. But I think that well, there's also other brands, uh, and I, I think when I first had this idea, like some t- 10 years ago uh, I had this loose cover that you just pressed onto the the watch container a little bit like Hedgid is is is, is doing with with their product but for me that didn't reflect mechanical engineering or mechanical innovation it was uh, it was too easy I wanted to have some kind of, of uh, mechanical locking mechanism and all of this I mean I'm um, 
I was also very into fashion and 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 you know mixing with with clothing and and this was supposed to be uh, something for for the uh, mechanical watch interested man or woman uh, that wanted to play with with a watch but in a mechanical way. So why you had sort of the call of the engineer you decided hey I I have to try this. <laughs> well, it, it led to that. It was a lot of iterations with 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 different. Um, I mean, the idea wasn't as clear when I started off. I, I headed out in, in 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 a direction, and I didn't know where to end. And and we did a lot of of test designs, uh, prototyping, testing, evaluation, which which is the design process. And and we applied that to, or I applied it to to developing a watch. And in the end, you, you found those elements that, oh, wow, this, this is the, uh, uh, what I'm looking for. This is the right feeling that, that I'm looking for. So I find it really interesting that you're talking about this mechanical system that you saw and you thought you could do better. And again, it's, the reason I'm sort of focusing on this is every single time somebody goes to design something, uh, oftentimes there's a reason behind it. It's not just they want to make something pretty. And the idea is that they could do something better. And so my understanding is that you played with some of these interchangeable watches. You personally liked the idea. You thought, hey, that's pretty cool. But none of the executions were nice enough for you, meaning they didn't feel elegant. They didn't feel like you wanted them. And you wanted to make the interchangeable watch that you wanted to wear. Am I sort of describing your mindset accurately? Or, or again, how would you say it? Well, well, no, no. Well, in a way, yes. But when I started off, there wasn't any interchangeability except for the Gucci. Uh, so, what ca- so what came up along the route, I already kind of had discovered and, and tried out. So when some of the concepts uh, arrived, uh, I, it was products that I already that I had tried out. And, and the latest one with, with the, the uh, Japanese manufacturer here uh, that, that made with the screwing lock mechanism. It was also something that for me was absolutely not good enough. I wanted to hide something. I wanted to make the locking mechanism, turn it into a design feature, you know, like the, the uh, uh, locking lever for, for the crown on the Panerai watch. Right. I wanted this to to uh, be like a statement. When you see the watch, people should should think about what what is that? What what does that part do? You know, like the push buttons on the chronograph that immediately recognizes. Uh, this should also be something that immediately recognizes that it's Australia, it's unique. It is the interchangeability functionality. People like that when there's something expected, but something else about that thing, which is slightly unexpected. I, I, I know that thing on his wrist. I know it's a watch. It's round. It has hands. It tells yeah. the time. But there's something a little bit different. There's a lever. Maybe, maybe they don't know it's a lever. And we like things that are expected, but have some little unexpected thing, right? Like it, It's interesting how we want to no, investigate. Exa- exactly. Yeah, I mean... I mean if you take some some things we are taught uh, how to interact with, like a lever, you know, like the push button on the radio, for instance, it, it's sometimes it, it tells you how you should interact or the handle of on, on something. So I was really looking into having something that should talk to the people operating the watch the locking mechanism that this is a lever, this is where you turn it. So that, that yes, was my idea with, with the design and how it came out. Now, this is a natural segue to some of the things you do in your, in your sort of past life, or more of your professional life, yeah. which is designing uh, tools uh, that people use uh, often for tasks they have to do many times. These have to be very durable tools. And this yeah. is something interesting that when, the human eye sees it, it sort of knows what to do with it. Talk a little bit about the science of ergonomics as a function of when you see something, you make pretty good guesses as to how to use it. I mean, obviously, this is probably a big part of your, of your life and your study. Tell, 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 some, tell us some things about this that you wouldn't know unless you were you and you studied all this. 
So uh, this is very interesting. I mean, now we're getting to the very, very core of, of what I was working with, machine, uh, man, and, and in interaction. And, and I was working with, with the world's best or, or, or most uh, car manufacturers, but also with, with the watch industries. And, and I designed tools. I designed innovative, uh, productive uh, products for them. And the ergonomics was one of the key success factors to that. Because if you're operating a machine for your whole shift for one day and, and you're assembling tiny, tiny screws at Rolex or ETA, like some of the clients were, or if you're assembling seats or bolts on a Tesla car or a Lamborghini car, uh, then also were, were clients that I was working with, uh, it has to be an extension of, of you. Because if, if it starts wearing you out, you won't be very, very successful in your job. And also the, the uh, company that is employing you will have a, a big rate of, of people leaving because of, of injuries, uh, fatigues, etc. So designing not just an innovative thing, but also designing something that should be human-friendly and, and user-friendly. So that, that was... Uh, a marriage between ergonomics, innovation, technology, uh, and design. And what are some things about that specifically? Like, give a really quick crash course. How does the hum- What did you learn about how the human brain thinks? How to design tools? How not to design tools? Because so much of this is based upon measuring reactions, seeing how people use the tools, seeing what they like and don't like, and. You can't guess these things. I'm, I'm really curious, after years and years of studying this, what are some of the core wisdoms that you've learned about the human? Well, the human is, is, is this is very interesting. And, and um, I'm thinking really, really fast now how to <laughs> summarize all of these years of, of research and, and from all of these experts. I mean, I had a team of 20 people working with me uh, when we designed this. And we had a big ergonomics laboratory measuring vibrations, we're measuring heat, we're measuring uh, the size of handles. I mean, if you have a big guy with big hands and then you have a small woman with small hands, for instance, taking, if we go into two ditches to to different sites, I mean, they both have to do the same kind of work. How do you design a product that is optimized for for both of them and, and not ending up in a compromise? So all of that knowledge with experts uh, with testing, uh, measuring, and, and of course, trying. But I think there's three ways of understanding the human. Uh, and th- these were my pillars. So one thing is to, that you do the job. That, that's the one thing. You learn by doing. You get the understanding from that. Secondly, you can interview, you can talk, you can, you can ask questions. Uh, but thirdly, it's also... Uh, to watch, to look at someone performing a task. And I would like to comp- compare this. If you, if you take one of the, say, simplest operations that everybody kind of could understand in, in order to, to, say, design interaction between a tool, uh, a, a work, and a human, it's like chopping wood. One thing is if you chop the wood yourself, you will feel what happens in your body when you take the axe and you swing it towards, towards that, that piece of wood, uh, if you film the guy or, or the woman that is chopping the wood, you will see a lot of things. If you place the, uh, the log of wood in, in a different position, etc. And thirdly, if you ask the person that is chopping the wood, what do you feel about this? What could be improvements, etc., etc. So I would say that those are the three pillars. But then applying science, applying knowledge, Etc. So all of that went into my design of the watch. So it's interesting. So there's no calculus behind this other than observation. The idea is to observe carefully, get good data, make intelligent deductions about those observations, and then see about how you can improve things. Like it's trial and error, I guess, is sort of an understatement. It's it's really one of the most purely observational things. The sort of field of ergonomics I'm fascinated with. Mostly because people make so many bad things that are not ergonomic, right? Well, yeah, I, I think because people are in a hurry. 
because they want to very quickly come out with a product. And in the end, you fool yourself because what kind of customer value are you bringing to market? It's, it's just that you were in a hurry to bring, bring out a product. And I think that is also when I did the Straya. I, I wasn't in a hurry. I wanted to make a really, really good product that came out with innovative uh, design, with an innovative feature, and, and of course, good looking. So I really wanted to bring a true value in a watch, not just another watch, as you, you, you see. I mean, every year there's... there's a multitude of, of new watches coming, but with very, very little value. How long did it take you to come out with the final product? I mean, you just started the brand recently, but you know, I know, I know you can put sort of years into it, but like really try to measure how long does something like this take in terms of helping other people to appreciate the, all the hurdles and, and challenges you have to jump through. I, I would say that it's 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 actually more than ten years. Not not a of efficient work, but it's it's also that you came up with an idea. Uh, I went down to Switzerland with with to the partner I worked with, and it took like six to eight months to actually uh, make a prototype out of it. And then after you get it, evaluate it, uh, okay, redesign, think about what could we do, what couldn't we do, and I went through also quite a lot of suppliers during this time. I, I worked with three different uh, Swiss um, manufacturers. And, and when I found the last one and with the watchmakers, uh, you could really feel that we were talking the same language. And then we moved very rapidly, but still it took us from that point two years to, to reach the final product. Why is it so difficult to find the right partner? Talk a little bit about that. Well, <laughs> it's, um, I think that all of them believed in, in, in the idea and in me when I came with, 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 with the first thoughts and, and the sketches of the stray and also with, with the prototypes. But it, it must have been also dedication, I think that when both parties dedicating to something, it's like, it's like a marriage. If, if just one part dedicates into the marriage, it's, it's, it's not going to work. It's, it's going to be a limping uh, uh, relationship. And I think that with, with, with the last partner um, in Switzerland, they really dedicated to this. And uh, that is when, when the magic begins and magic happens. Doesn't everyone say they're going to be dedicated? Like, you know, again, there's many people who have this dream about starting their own watch brand, and they think it's just as easy as going to a company that makes it, but it's not. You know, explain your 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 experience. Well, it's absolutely not not easy. I mean, if if you if at first you have to be able to describe what is it that you want with with your dream to make them understand you. Secondly, I mean, a sales guy. If you meet someone that is just a sales guy, he will he will sell you anything. He he will blow dust in, in into your eyes. But uh, you need to be able to read uh, the person on the other side to see what it is that they're actually saying. Uh, and I think that is just experience. And I brought the experience from working with with other businesses. And and what people are the same no matter where, where they are working. And, and of course, you have some kind of differences in, 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 in cultures. Those are there. And um, I think for, for anyone trying and anyone that is looking to, to success, it's, it's just never give up. No matter if, if you're working with, with, with cars or fashion or, or, or want to get into the, the watch business. We've noticed that Many times as brands get bigger, they tend to bring more and more manufacturing in-house. And oftentimes, that is a function of the fact that suppliers are not always as reliable as you want them to be, oftentimes quite expensive. Um, yeah. Sometimes people say that it's the suppliers who are the richest actors in the watch industry. Does that statement surprise you? <laughs> well, it could, could be. Um, <laughs> could be. Uh, I, I think... From, from what I learned, it's always important to, if you're into a partnership, it's a partnership from, from two sides. And if you feel that one of those sides 
are not as dedicated as you are, it's probably the time to leave for something else or to start up your your own in-house production. But but from my side, uh, I'm very very happy with with uh, the team that I'm having, and they bring incredible value to to the Straya to the project. When when you are faced with the proposition that your product may be good, but is not going to be the low the low price leader in the market. How does that affect your strategy as a brand? I mean, this is a marketplace where, you know, there's a lot of different watches, a lot of different price points. To a degree, you get what you pay for. But at the same time, you know, you're not going to get the economy of scale with a small watch brand that you are as a swatch. And the marketplace is forgiving, meaning they will spend more on a product where they might be able to get something of quote unquote similar quality for less, even though that's a very you know, complicated statement. They're happy to do it for the experience, for the story. You know, going into this, you always knew you weren't going to be the low price leader. And again, there's many people just like you, yet there is success to be had. And that's a very different mentality than maybe a lot of other uh, uh, verticals where you either do want to be the low price leader or uh, you 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 have the right set of features and expectations for the price. But in the watch industry, it's a lot fuzzier. You know, talk a little bit about, you know, how you navigate that, especially as someone who is a, you know, a, a, an industrial designer and pricing and things like that and marketing. It's, it's, it's quite a different matter of art. Sure. I mean, to begin with, when it comes to positioning, um, for me, I think that if I, if I was going to price the different uh, watches that, that I did over the years in terms of prototypes, they would have come out in, in completely different price range just because of how the, the, the mechanism was executed and how the watch came out. And I always had an aim to make a premium watch and I never intended to be a high volume brand or a big brand. This is, this is a, a small brand. This is a niche brand. This is a watch for people that are looking for something else, that are looking for a unique story, that are looking for a unique product, and they're prepared to pay for it. Strayer is not a cheap watch, and, and the intention is never to, to be a, a big brand with, with, with uh, uh, cut, cut prices. So, so you pay for, for uh, a very, very well-executed product. And you pay for a story, and, and with that comes authenticity from working in in uh, the business. Some of the uh, tools that I made for Rolex and Eta, for instance, uh, were also awarded with with design awards. And it's kind of funny coming back to to uh, that that it also inspired me to take on a new. Well, come in and, and, and do a new take on, 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 on the watch business, the watch world, which is also very protective and, and, and uh, safeguarding. It, it certainly is. And you mentioned a few times making uh, tools for the production of watches. Yeah. I want to comment on this a little bit. There are some fantastically cool tools out there that are designed often to do one or a very small range of tasks. Um, yeah. What a lot of people don't understand is that when it came to the watch industry, the tool came first and then the watch came second, meaning tools to make uh, precise little parts. I don't really know the history of tools as well as I do watches, uh -huh. but these instruments to make little things had to come first. And then from there, you can make watch parts. And the, the, the history of tool making and watchmaking have always been connected. There is a whole universe of fascinating, very high quality, very expensive tools specifically designed to do tiny, tiny little things. Set a little stone, screw in a little screw, align a little thing yeah. here. And I don't think that most people really recognize the depth of this universe. Obviously, you do. <laughs> well, I have some insights in it. I, I'm not sure if any, anyone has has the full insight, but it's it's. Uh, I mean, tools are there to, uh, I would say, help the brands and people achieve their dreams in a way to to uh, make multiple of of uh, small small parts in order to to give more watches to more people. Otherwise, you end up in in handmade 
uh, and then then you're looking at a totally different uh, type of watch. Well, isn't uh, a tool a labor-saving device? That's sort of what I was raised to believe, that a tool yeah, is some yeah. type of labor-saving or, or something you couldn't do by yourself at all, but it, it, it helps you do something more efficiently or whatever. And this is a very valuable well, I mean, thing it, to our species. It is. I mean, it brings value in the terms that it's, it saves time. It actually helps you to repeat a task and to have a consistent quality. And I, I mean, if you take some of the big brands that are really known for durability and, and quality, it's because of the, the tools that are used uh, to help them achieve that, that, it, that screws doesn't loose up or, or that parts doesn't fall off when, when shaken or, or dropped. So, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely like that. I mean, I really think that these tools, in a lot of ways, are the unsung hero of the watch industry. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, again, not only is well, the, I'm making them a little bit more famous then. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's I don't. Most people will never have a chance to see these things. I mean, you can buy little like Swiss-made Bergeon tools, you know, screwdrivers and things yeah. like that. But that's not what I'm talking yeah. about. I'm talking about like electronic things, robotic things, or just very yeah. sophisticated mechanical things. They sit on the table. They're heavy. Which is which is much more what I work with, and, and you know, a system with, with uh, this innovative little ergonomic screwdriver connected to a, a, a data box, that, that's like 10 to, to 20,000 euros or dollars for, for one set. So it's, it's not like one of those little Bergeron uh, mechanical screwdrivers or, or loops that you see. It's, yeah, I mean, it, this is hardcore stuff, and I've seen some incredibly fancy things how does one get into that industry of designing tools? Usually people learn how to use tools. It seems quite niche and privileged to actually be the person designing the tools. Well, it, from, from school, I mean, I'm, I'm trained as a mechanical designer and, and mechanical engineer, oh, sorry, industrial designer, mechanical engineer. And it's, I was also, I was always into uh, designing smaller things, I, I like that compared to, to designing bigger things like houses and, and, and trucks and cars. And, and in some way, I just ended up, I met with, with uh, uh, a friend who, who just needed help with, with design a tool. And for this big company in Sweden, uh, a global company with, with uh, 50,000 employees all over the world. And that was the beginning of a 15-year-long saga with, 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 with them. And, and uh, I designed a whole program for them. I became the global head of design. And I traveled all over the world to uh, clients. Uh, and, and I mentioned a few of them, like Lamborghini, uh, Porsche, Rolex, Tesla, all over the world to make innovative products, to design products for their processes, understand their needs. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of like a very shrunk up summary of, of uh, what I came from and what I did there. Is it a specialized field because not a lot of people do it or is it just that hard? You mentioned something about requiring time. And I know that so many you know, factories and things like that, product companies are, are in, in a rush you know, what makes it possible for tool companies to, to sort of take their time? What's different about their businesses? Well, I mean, I, I remember from, from that company was that they really want to bring true innovation. And, and we spent quite a lot of, of money into R&D, research and development, in order to be able to keep our brand promise with, with uh, su sustain innovation within our clients and to bring real value and I just brought that with me when I started my own my own watch brand and that is also I think why it took so much time because I knew what I could achieve in terms of mechanical innovation and not just rush it and come up with something that wasn't like okay it's something but it's not good enough but this is something I'm really really proud of and it has the same kind of thinking that I was trained in with bringing innovation and taking time to bring real innovation. And mechanical innovation takes much longer time compared to developing innovative software or uh, developing things for, for the screen. It's, it's two very, very different 
research fields. And that is also what, what happens when, if you take tech brands like Facebook, Microsoft, when they are going, to, going into physical products, it, it, it's much, much more complex than they thought. And also for mechanical product companies, traditional companies, when they are moving into software, it's much, much more complicated than, than they thought it was to cross these two fields. Hi, I'm Thomas Bayot, the founder of Bayot Watches. My family has been living in the heart of the Swiss Watch Valley for generations, but I'm the first one to put our name on the dial. Today, Bayo is one of the best kept secrets here in Switzerland, adopted by many industry connoisseurs. When we released a 100% Swiss-made stunning tourbillon for under 5,000 US dollars, the biggest regional newspaper came to investigate to see if this was possible. It is. We currently offer five model families and our prices start at 500 US dollars. I invite you to come and learn what industry experts know best. Authentic Swiss watchmaking. Visit BA111OD.com. Geneva-based watchmaker Raymond Vile invites you to discover the beautiful Caliber RW1212 automatic movement. Designed exclusively for Raymond Vial in Switzerland, the RW1212 features an exposed balance wheel symmetrically positioned on the dial under a traditional watchmaker's bridge. Inspired by the world's great musical composers and instrumentalists, Raymond Vial harmoniously integrates the RW1212 movement into a family of products that now also includes the visually captivating RW1212 skeleton. Raymond Vial is a family-owned and operated company that for more than 45 years has been celebrating independent watchmaking for enthusiasts everywhere. Visit raymond-wild.com to see more. What do they need to do to get it right? Is it just about taking the right steps? I mean, oftentimes they don't go into it thinking they're going to screw it up. Like, yeah, we're going to rush this. We're going to do a you know, half-ass yeah. job. Like, what, what ends up happening? Where do these realizations occur? Well, I, I think that if you just... It's, it's that you assume. I mean, you should never assume. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that, that I learned from, from my friend Paul Smith. Yeah, that was his... How do you say that was his uh, his word um, his motto his, his yes, dogma his, motto, his mantra yes, his <laughs> motto yeah that was never assume and I just took that I and I think that it if you're just assuming that if I apply the same process if I apply the same kind of of thinking and work on this field that I have no experience of it's gonna work and it doesn't but it's we talked previously about how we could uh, take knowledge from another business into to a new one and then come in with, with like a white sheet and bring innovation. I think that's one thing, but you should never assume. Like Elon Musk, for instance, he changed a whole business with, with his way of thinking that came from, from another side, but he never assumed. He didn't assume anything. He worked hard. He was willing to adapt. He was willing to change his mindset when things didn't work out as he thought. And I think that's also, even if you wouldn't describe Elon Musk as humble, I think that's humbleness in how you think, that you're not assuming, you're not taking anything for granted. I mean, he's just being practical. And the reality is if you try to make anything, yeah. you know that you can't just copy something else or assume that it's going to take the same yeah. amount of time for you as it did someone else. Like those, again, we'll go back to the word assumptions, are just fundamental business errors no matter what you're doing. Yeah, no, it's true. Agree. Yet, yet, and let's, let's, let's face it, who is forcing these assumptions to be made? It's the financial people who want timelines and who want, yeah. who want guarantees and who want yeah, estimates <laughs> and all yeah. these facts and things like that that don't actually have answers. It has forced engineers and creative people to spin their wheels and come up with a bunch of nonsense for financial people who frankly just refuse to do what they actually need to do, which is just guess. Just guess or be open-minded yeah. or create opportunities for risk. If you're a business and you can't take risks, you're just not going to be around for very long. No, no, no. It's, it's uh, absolutely true. And, and that, I think, is, is the problem for a lot of engineers because usually people working in finance instead, they're more 
how do you say, they're better in talking and, 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 and uh, uh, going out for, for their course. And the engineers have an idea, they can't really explain it, and they lose. And I think that that's, um, when that happens in a company, when it gets more established, it gets more afraid, it gets more protective, it will eventually also start losing market shares. And someone else will come in with a new idea, with something new, and uh, they will eventually take over. You've seen this if you look at companies all over uh, that if they're not able to renew themselves, innovate, it, it, it's it's just a matter of time before they're, they're God. Uh, sorry, God, before they're gone. gone yeah, well, dead. the watch industry, that's yeah. actually what they think. If you do the same thing yeah. for long enough, you become a God. That's actually yeah. what, what many people in, the spa in this space <laughs> no, oddly it's think. it's true. Yeah, it's true. How do you, you know, give some advice to the industry? Obviously, part of that is I'm going to make my own brand. But from yeah. what you've learned, and obviously you're a watch lover and you know the industry pretty well, give them some advice on innovation. They keep talking about it all the time, yet there's not a lot of it going on, is there? Well, it isn't. I mean, I don't think it's very innovative to, to put in a tubion in, in, in a watch. Uh, it, it's more like a show-off. And uh, while you, you have a few different... How do you see set, sets of classics that 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 you get in as innovations in the mechanical world, but but in the watch world, but it's not really that innovation to see. I think Urwerk is is doing some really cool stuff. Uh, a lot of work with with design is going on in 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 others. Uh, I think that um, well, you, you you see some kind of innovation, but absolutely not as you see in, in other businesses. And, and I don't know if it's just because it's that protective, it's, it's, it's a Swiss thing. The Brits uh, did a lot of lovely work with, with watches, but has kind of like lost it. Uh, I mean, one of the, the latest biggest things was George Stans with, with the coaxial innovation. And it took a Lebanese to actually bring it into to the Swiss watch industry with with with, with Mr. Hayek, so I'm, I think that fresh blood and, and open minded is is what you need in order to uh, to bring innovation into the Swiss watch industry. And also, I think you can use those words never assume again. Well, let me again just offer a counterpoint. I agree with you, but I think the counterpoint has to do with what the customer is actually buying. In their yeah. mind, they believe they are buying a tool and all the things that make for a good tool is what they think they're looking at. But in reality, they're buying a tool, the total functionality of which they will never really use, especially if it's a sports watch or a highly complicated watch. For the most part, the tool is ornamental and that's what they're buying is emotion. So it's like their brain yeah. gets attracted to their tool but their wallet must be connected to the heart. And this is a very strange set of circumstances that, again, a brand needs to juggle. And that, I think, creates some of this inherent complexity and you know, push and pull. I think, I think exactly what you're talking about. It's, it's two things that's that is creating customer value. Because one of the things that creates customer value is, is emotional. And if you play with emotions, it's that, okay, Brad Pitt is wearing this watch or, or uh, Kate Moss or, or whoever's or, or the first man in space. That's going to be the emotion. And you want that emotion. You're feeling, okay, I'm, I have a bit of Buzz Aldrin on, on my wrist. It's, it, it's, even though I'm just going one kilometer or 20 miles to my work, it feels like I'm on my way to space. Uh, or value could be that it helps you solving something like a tool like a, a, a task that saves you time or saves you money but in terms of that there's very little innovation there's very much innovation with 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 emotions but not very much innovations in terms of of on the tooling side that was actually apple who is now the world's largest watch manufacturer uh, who I mean, came up with, with bringing much more value in terms of helping people 
to save time or solve tasks, etc., with 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 the iWatch. But it's it's not mechanical. It's not mechanical at all. Why? Why it's it's not attractive if if you're into mechanical watches. So why 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 is mechanical attractive? I think that well, it addresses some emotions. You can see these little parts, you know, moving back and forth and ticking and and. For me, uh, I just, I mean, love the, the on, a, on, a, on a real watch, I just love seeing the hands, you see the shadow, you see the, uh, the imperfection, even if it's perfect in a way. It's, it's the same with cars. I don't like the, the, the digital dials. I love the, the, the old dials. Uh, that, that, because it, it adds some personality. It's, it's not super perfect. But it's it's kind of like how perfect something that is man-made uh, can be, and it's yeah. Let's talk about the dials. You yeah. took something very interesting, and I think they're quite innovative. Talk about the dial of the Strayer watches. Well, first I ha I have to say what what you said on the dinner we had in Los Angeles was was one of the I think finest comments I I have ever heard. But we will save that one for a little bit. Uh, the dials are, of course, inspired uh, from, from... You have a bit of motor history with, with cars and, and aeroplanes. My dad was a pilot, so I thought it was a little bit fun to bring in the aesthetics from, from those. But mainly, uh, it's, it's inspired from measuring instruments. Sweden was very, very front end when it came to mechanical measuring instruments in, in the 60s, 70s. And all of those gauges, even if you look at older gauges, way, way back, uh, even to the 20s, they, they have a lovely aesthetics around them. And I wanted to interpret that into a new design, into the, the Stray design. And in terms of ergonomics, explain why this is a good dial. Because again, there's one thing to use a tool, there's another thing to read the tool. Talk about how you use some of your skills to make something which is as legible as you can make it. Well, I, there's five different colors on one dial. And I put the minutes way out, so you could easily read off what kind of minute. You can see the hours is on the, the inner scale. Uh, all of the watches are high contrast, uh, except the, or, or the dials are high contrast, except the pink one. But you have high contrast because the, the dial itself is, is very uh, low contrast, but, but the, the hands are black. So you can just at a glance see what time it is. And the overall wearing of the watch, um, was made ergonomic, but short lugs, uh, so it sits good over the wrist. Even some say that the diameter is, is in, in Panerai size, which means that it's, it's, it's not a small watch, but it sits very, very good on, on the hand. And the soft uh, leather also brings that kind of nice wear and feel uh, to, to the person that, that has the watch. I have always loved watches where you can read the time very easily. And I, I can't explain why, because again, I rely on other things to tell the time, and sometimes the yeah. most legible watches are not the most beautiful. But I will convince myself that something is beautiful sometimes, even when it's not, if it's very, very legible. There is a person who really respects the watch for being a great tool. I'm one of them, and there's people that are are, yeah. are sort of not. What do you think is the difference between some of the psychology between people who want something that they think is cool versus someone who doesn't care about perception, doesn't care about what people think, just needs to have something that satisfies their eyes more importantly than anyone else's. But I, I think we're back to the previous discussion about if you see the watch as a tool, that's something that helps you. I mean, you quickly look at a watch and it helps you read the time. That is value for you. That you just turn the wrist, you can immediately see that okay, it's it's ten past or uh, twenty-two or whatever. Whereas the other person, where it could be almost impossible to read the time on the watch, it's just an emotion that is carrying around him. He knows that he paid fifty thousand for it or 
200,000 for it. Or he knows that this is one out of 50 made or one out of three made or, or that it's, it's uh, something that he, he purchases as a memory in Singapore or whatever. So I think it, it's again back to, is it something that helps me in terms of saving time? Is it a tool or is it something that is emotional? Uh, that is of emotional value to me. I mean, I, I don't want to sort of underestimate it here or undermine it. I mean, the, the dial is really a masterpiece of legibility. And, and it's not Thank the you. only legible Thank dial you. in the world. But I I know <laughs> I've seen thousands and thousands of watch dials, yeah. many of, you know, extremely bad quality. And, and for me, I measure the time. I, I look at the dial and I ask myself, how long does it take me before I learn what the hours is, what the minutes is, if there's yeah. another piece of information. Yeah. I can literally say, boom, I got yeah. it, or my eyes are searching, my eyes are searching. And I have come to really appreciate it because I think that, again, as a labor-saving device, you should not be hunting for the time on a dial. And when I see your dial, I imagine a person who designed it who hates illegible dials. Is that true? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, I can be very fascinated about, say, the the Jacob and, and, and company where, where they made the the uh, Godfather watch or something like that, uh, or some of the Uber, But it's not it's not that you can see the the time on a glance. It's it's more like a piece of art or something. I I love just having a quick look. I see what time it is. Uh, I just love that, and that is why I don't like dials that are silver with with silver hands because you know they just blend into each other and, and it's very very difficult why do you think that so many illegible watches or poor watches of poor ergonomics get made and again it's probably a very obvious answer you have furniture yeah. with poor ergonomics cars with poor ergonomics yeah. computers with poor ergonomics clothing with poor ergonomics shoes with poor ergonomics that out that outnumber those those items in those categories with good er ergonomics um Maybe it goes back to the consumer who just doesn't know enough. I mean, what is it? Because the moment you use something ergonomic, you don't go back. I imagine the people that used your special screwdrivers, if they said, yeah. okay, now you need to go back to the other one, they'd probably want to cut your hand off. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually true because you, you, you have some tools that will uh, cut your fingers off. And, and that was a problem in, in, the, in the industry. Uh -oh. But coming back to this, yeah, no, seriously, it was. Uh, and it's not that fun when, when you know, the, the employees say enough and we're closing down the plant because of, of five guys losing their fingertips uh, in, in a month or so. So that is a, a true problem where it becomes hazardous. And that is, I would say, bad design because someone didn't think all the way out and that comes with experience i think and, and also understanding the process and asking the right questions and bad design is is in a way incompetence or a lack of interest of bringing value or, or the right thing to to uh, a client and Probably someone that is just in there for, for making a quick buck or, or uh, saving some money. And I think for me, bad design at the moment is when you have some of the brands that, you know, pushed out thousands and thousands and thousands of plastic wash, watches. And now they're trying to greenwash themselves by, by doing uh, new watches with come out of, of uh, plastic saved from the oceans, which is, it's, it's just it's bad storytelling and it's, it's, it's just a horrible way of, of trying to uh, yeah, greenwash themselves where, where they should have thought of that from, from the beginning, not I just mean, because it's 2023. There's a lot of greenwashing going on right now, even by companies that don't need it. And some companies... Yeah. Definitely a horrible, but, but like watch brands for the most part, especially like luxury watch brands, these are not exactly high polluters, are they? No, I think that if you take the, this is more, I would say in the lower watch and business, but, but if you take, I mean, the impact, what, a Rolex submarine from the 70s, I mean, the minimum impact that it had, I mean, it's still serviced, it's still around. It's like with old cars, if you keep them around, it's, it's much less polluting than, than any new car uh, because of all, all the material. 
that is used in your car. And uh, for me, it was very important that, that okay, if, if I'm going to do a watch, I'm also going to make it sustainable. So the steel is uh, sustainably recycled stainless steel, from Swedish steel, of course, the best steel you can get in the world. Um, <laughs> the boxes are, are recycled uh, and uh, also the leather is sustainably made, very soft from, from Italy. What makes Swedish steel so good? We talked a little bit about this and I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. Not all steel is created equally. Explain what makes a good steel good steel. Well, I mean, the Swedish steel to begin with, it, it, it has the, the highest quality uh, in terms of, of iron and carbon in, in the world. And um, it's, it's used well, secretly or it's not a secret for instance, by, by all of the high-level Swiss brands that are working with, with, with steel watches. So Rolex, Audemars Pichet, etc. all of them, Patek, uh, are using the Swedish stainless steel. And speaking of uh, supplies, I know that there's a family in, in Switzerland that has made an enormous amount of uh, wealth supplying this to, to, to those brands. So, well, so it's 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 a it's some formulation in the metal. No, it's it's the material in itself. It's the high quality of the the um, the iron that they take out from from the ground. So it's 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 the best in in the world. It's better than anywhere else. You were talking about Swedish steel, and I thought that brought up an interesting question about materials and componentry. You mentioned how you went to various suppliers to build your watch. And not everybody uses the same materials. The design is one thing, the functionality is another thing, but the materials that you use, you must have had very specific requirements, a man who knows materials. Was it difficult to get things made in exactly the materials you want? Um, talk a little bit about how important materials are to the Strayer watches, in addition to having, of course, the world's best Swedish steel. Let's <laughs> remind everyone that you are, of course, Swedish. Yes, I am Swedish. And the, and the watch is a Swedish design, but Swiss made. Well, when it comes to materials, it's, it's important because it, it defines us. I mean, if, if you're working with plastic or glass fiber, I mean, that, that, I mean glass fiber, obviously not for, 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 a, for a watch, but it, it will define you in one way. If you're working with precious metals, it will define something else. But <clears throat> I think steel... Uh, tells so much about it. You can have steel, rough, uh, you know, American steel, all of that, bum, bum, bum. And uh, you have steel as a real precision, uh, surgical material. And I wanted precision. I wanted steel. Uh, I wanted it to have uh, the sustainability thinking with, with being recycled. And I was surprised actually that well how eager the Swiss were to help me with, with with that. I had more troubles actually finding suppliers uh, to to uh, to work with it. But once you find the right one, they are it's like they're one step ahead of you. And when it came to the strap, I found the leather quite early that I wanted to work with, but it also took four different suppliers before we got the right uh, feel to it, the right execution of, of, of the sewing. Now, when you receive the lower quality samples or things like that, yeah. do you ever ask yourself, like, are they trying to cheat you? Or do other clients just not have the same taste as you? Like, how do you always explain the fact that so few suppliers tend to offer what it is that you are looking for? You know what I mean? Well, I was, I was looking for the best, <laughs> not uh, really, because I, I was working with, with the best brands in the world. I was designing the best tools in the world. They were on, on a scale so much better than, than the competition out there. They were much, much more expensive. And I knew what I could aim for, and I wasn't going to settle for less. That, that was uh, um, what I got out for and uh, to, to achieve. The Swiss understood it, and the toughest part for me was working with prototypes 
And you know, the prototype will not look or feel really the same like the, the final sample, but you have to believe uh, that, that uh, you will get there and trust. And um, yeah, so that, that was the leap of faith <laughs> in the end that, that you have to do when you push the production button and you know that the production finalized is going to look so much better than the prototype. And, and with the glass, with, with the finalized hands, uh, dials, levers, uh, all of that come together. I mean, you obviously are someone who has a discriminating eye because I've seen a lot of watches. And I think what impressed me a lot about the Strayer watches was the first attempt was so good. It often Thank takes you. brands a few tries to get it so good. So. Um, you know, Mr. Stray knows his watches, he knows what he wants, and he was able to execute it. And it is no, no easy task. But to a degree, once you launch the brand, you almost sort of want to wipe your brow and say, oh, I'm done now. But in a lot of ways, the, the work has just begun. Yeah. What have you learned are the necessary next steps now that you've launched the brand, you're seeing the reaction? What are you going to do next? Well, Doing next is that now we are uh, talking about Australia. We're presenting it to uh, people in in the media like you. We are putting it with, with the right people. Where or I'm saying we because it's it's uh, the team that that I have that is helping me with with uh, promoting the uh, Australia, and we are concerned to really find the right voices and and uh, uh, also having private events we had a few in in sweden stockholm uh, i've been doing a lot of traveling to meet with people in the us uh, as you and i met uh, in in the uk uh, and in switzerland to present personally the straya the story um, to stand out with all of the the brands and and all of the people trying to get you know their voices heard or their product pre- presented. Next steps is of course aligning with with the right distributors uh, and and shops. I don't believe in just placing the product in in in, in a luxury shop and it will basically. Pr- be forgotten or, or just be there in, in, in some glass shelf and, and not promoted by the people there. So we want to find people that are passionate about Australia, who want to promote it and believe the story and want to help us bring this, this further. I think that what's interesting about the watch is if you had experiences with other watches that have a customization element where you can switch up something, you get multiple pieces. I've seen so many of these from bezels <laughs> that screw on and off, the cases that go in and out. And I've always thought to myself, boy, that's really cool. But they so often fail because they either don't appreciably add to it or they cheapen the watch somehow. And your solution was very thoughtful, obviously studied and, and quite elegant. I've really enjoyed this in a lot of ways. I'm someone that likes large watches. I like legible dials and I like sort of trick cases. I don't think people understand that engineering a case is not a simple matter. It's very, no. very difficult. Oftentimes a good case really is a masterpiece of micromechanical engineering. Yeah. And and it takes it takes knowing that, seeing seeing all the bad results, you know, and, and no, I appreciate you, something that's really good. And yeah, and my pleasure. The, I mean the the machine, we really had to search to find just a machine to make the the outer bezel. That that was that was a Sherlock Holmes task to to, to search that one and, and find it. So yeah, you you really know the industry, you know your mechanics, and and I'm I'm honoured that you can see that because it's not everybody that that understands the amount of work uh, to do this, and and it it should just feel obvious in a way. I mean, it's it's when when you do it like it like it is obvious. Then you know that you success, but it's not everybody who knows who can tell that there's so much effort put into to doing this. Thank you. My pleasure. Ola, where can people learn more about you and Strayer watches on the internet? So you can 
browse our website, strayawatches.com, and you can look at uh, our Instagram, uh, also on LinkedIn. Uh, those are the three platforms where, where we are. Or you could send me an email, uh, and I will, if I have the opportunity, uh, give you a personal presentation online or uh, in uh, in real, if if possible. <laughs> but well, don't very... threaten people with a good time, although they'll take you up on it. <laughs> well, I have to be the sales guy here, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Spending time and money over ten years now, now, now I I have to make the effort to to uh, to sell it, of course. You're doing a great job. Everyone, this has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Mr. Ola Stray, founder of Strayer Watches. Ola, thank you so much. Thank you, Ariel. Thanks for hosting. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit a blog2watch.com. <laughs>